I grew up in a small factory town in southern New Jersey, right on the edge of the Pine Barrens. Home of the Jersey Devil, Italian water ice, and mosquitoes the size of your fist, it was an interesting mix of rural blue-collar families eking out a living in the narrow strips of sand between the salt marshes of the Atlantic coast and the brackish swamps of the Delaware Bay. My family was extremely Roman Catholic. Mass every Sunday, vacation Bible school in the summer, catechism classes the rest of the year, etc. My mother was the school secretary and financial bookkeeper for our parish parochial school, so if we weren't busy with other family responsibilities, we were at church. I began volunteering as an altar server at a very young age. In addition, I also joined the church folk music group that provided musical accompaniment to masses scheduled at less popular times. Generally, we performed a Saturday or a Sunday evening mass at sundown leaving the larger formal choirs to sing the Sunday morning celebrations. In the spring of 1994, I'd been splitting my time at church between altar service in the mornings and performing with the music group in the evenings. By May, I had to reduce my availability for morning masses. My maternal grandfather was dying of lung cancer, a consequence of decades of cigarette smoking while serving in the military. We'd been spending most of our time at my grandparents' house awaiting the inevitable. My grandfather was a textbook example of the greatest generation. Born in 1914, he enlisted in the U.S. Army before finishing high school. Family tradition says he lied about his age to join early. When I recently found his application, I discovered that he had changed his birthday by 10 days. Apparently, he had his parents' permission to join, but had had to change the date when he realized he was still a few days too young. He served for 16 years, stationed in Aguadillo, Puerto Rico. After World War II, he retired from active duty and moved back home to New Jersey, where he joined the Army National Guard. After World War II, he retired from active duty and moved back home to New Jersey, where he joined the Army National Guard. My mother shared stories of the family crowding into pickup trucks along with the families of other troops from his battalion and heading down in a convoy to assist communities impacted by hurricanes up and down the Atlantic coast. He served his country for another 24 years retiring after 40 years of continuous enlistment. When my mother asked him about his retirement, he made it very clear. He didn't think young Americans should be fighting and dying in Vietnam, and his retirement was his personal protest. He genuinely cared about the lives of everyone around him. He didn't serve in the military to fight people. He served to make sure people were kept safe. On Sunday, May 15th, I had cleared my morning mass schedule so we had more time for visiting, but I was still scheduled to perform with the music group at the evening sunset mass. By this time, my grandfather was still conscious, but not very communicative. He would nod or shake his head when I asked him questions, but he didn't really have the strength to speak. As evening was approaching, I let him know that I had to leave to head to church, but that I'd be back to see him tomorrow after school. He nodded, and I squeezed his hand, kissed his forehead, and headed out. Mom drove me back to town right before Mass was scheduled to start, and much to my surprise, I was the only musician who showed up that night. For whatever reason, None of the other two dozen or so members of the music group were there. I glanced at the clock and quickly started sorting through my pile of sheet music, spreading out some ideas on the organ bench. There was no time left to panic. Mass was in five minutes, and I was on my own. I raced into the sacristy, checked in with our pastor, and confirmed the list of songs and readings for the evening. I quickly set up microphones at the piano and went right into the opening announcements and the processional hymn. Up until that night, I had only played piano during Mass for perhaps one song every few weeks. More experienced musicians would usually play the instruments while I only provided vocals. This time, I had an hour-long Mass to play through, a 12-year-old kid alone as the cantor, with around 300 parishioners in attendance. I never really had time for stage fright to hit me. Once Mass starts, it follows a script. I merely had to wait for my cues and complete the steps as described. I was strangely calm the whole time. 
despite a lot of eyes and ears watching and listening to me. Everything went well. I sang a solo piece during the period of meditation after communion, received a lot of hugs and thank yous from the clergy, and Mom and I headed home. When we got there, the old cassette tape answering machine was blinking. One message from my grandmother. My grandfather had passed away at precisely 6 p.m. that evening, just as I was welcoming everyone to sing the processional hymn. My mother sighed and smiled through her tears. He kept saying how much he wanted to hear you sing in church. Footsteps creeping along the hall at midnight. Uh -huh. Shadows dancing in the corner of your eye. Voices floating from downstairs after twilight. Big no specters moaning from the attic in reply. Everyone has a spooky story, something they don't discuss. But life is a haunted oratory when you're like us. So sit tight, turn on the light, then curl up with some ghoulish history. Something a little dark and dreary. Serve with a heaping dose of eerie. Raise those Moscow mules and clink them. Whoopsies. Ghost. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. And this is Cool Intentions. Oh, that was super fucking pro. We did it. <laughs> we did it. We so nailed slick. that shit. Did so, you hear us open this so fucking slick. podcast? Like we like to the fucking manner born. I mean, you would have thought we had done this shit before. <laughs> it feels like it's been forever. It, it has been. It has been. We have not nailed that opening in a while. Have we ever Fine. nailed that opening? <laughs> At least, I think we did it at least four times in a row. I don't... So that it stopped becoming new that we did it right. But I now do. we're back to we did it right. This is exciting. I don't share that memory. I think we've always messed it up. I think <laughs> I think we're remembering halcyon days that didn't exist. Right. You're still having COVID shot vaccine sweats, so <laughs> I you know, it's it's not oh. it's not as bad as I thought it was gonna be. I thought I was everyone because everyone's so goddamn dramatic that I know they're like, oh my god, take so I'll drink all the water. Just stay in bed, eat, force yourself to eat. I'm like, I'm over here figuring like, it's gonna be like I have malaria. Um, right. And then, uh, and you know, it was fine. The first, uh, I got the shot two days ago. First shot two mm. days ago. I got mine yesterday. Very underwhelming experience. I mean, which is, I guess after the year we've had, I, I don't know that I was expecting some grand climax, but it was kind of like the end of The Sopranos. <laughs> or it's just kind of like, all this, and I'm sitting here getting a shot from some pleasant woman named Iris while looking at a shelf of Fanta behind some curtains in a CBS. <laughs> and well, it's uh, like it's over in a month and a half or so. Yeah. And then <laughs> it's like, hey. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, I got the shot. They make you stick around the store for about 10, 15 minutes to make sure you don't have yeah. an, an immediate reaction. We didn't. That's when I went shopping. Uh, and then, yeah, same. We're like, let's get some Pringles and some Coke Zero. <laughs> no. What <laughs> accoutrement do we need yeah, to watch like, oh, it? The Pirates, oh, hey, whatever documentary pretzels. the rest don't of the night. Don't mind if I do. So <laughs> then we get back in the car and, you know, made the uh, hour and a half, two hour drive uh, back to uh, North Hollywood because we had to drive to Bakersfield to get it. That's where we were eligible. And yeah. this weird, weird reasons. I don't understand how it works. But Brandon's like, I got us an appointment in Bakersfield. I'm like, where the fuck is Bakersfield? He's like, it's about two hours away. But the drive is gorgeous. And it was. Uh, anyway, oh, so, nice. uh, 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 and then like, the first night I was fine. Uh, my arm was really sore. 
which I'm told is pretty typical. Not typical for me. Every time I've gotten a shot, I've never had really a sore arm. But I, I mean, but say... I woke up. I woke up yesterday morning, feeling like I had fallen down the stairs on that arm the day before. Mm. It was mm -hmm. in. I was like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? And then I just kind of stayed that way all day. And then last night, yeah. I started getting hot flashes and the sweats. And then I woke up this morning. I don't. I don't feel sick or anything. Um, I just feel groggy as fuck. Yeah. Um, so the pain, the arm pain, I we have definitely had. We didn't really feel it until the end of the day, so five, six hours later. Then mm, I went yeah. to, like, stretch or something, put my arm over my head, and I was like, ah! <laughs> it was so, <laughs> what happened? And then what I remembered, oh, right, someone stabbed it. But it, the, the shot itself doesn't hurt. It didn't hurt at all. It was the no. arm pain afterwards. And then I was like, hey, Jack, lift your arm over your head. And then he was like, ah! <laughs> so it was nice. It's nice that we have each other to both be like, right. why does it hurt so bad in my arm? Same with why? me. And, because me and Brad are kind of in the same boat. And, and yeah. he's just kind of like, oh, he'll groggy. Oh, my arm hurts. Why? And he went and worked out the next day. So, and I was like, don't work out anything upper body because you're going to regret it. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll just do a couple of shoulder presses. I'm like, that's upper body. <laughs> yeah, that is. There's the only right. thing more it's, upper it's, the only thing more upper body than that is your fucking head and there's no exercises yeah. for that. That's directly moving where the shot was. Yeah. Well, and you know sometimes you though you hear if you get a flu shot you want to move your arm around a lot so it doesn't hurt. And yeah. so mm -hmm. I don't know if I did that. Um, but it, it's really only if I lift my elbows. If my elbows are tucked in, I'm fine. Right, it's the lifting of my elbow that hurts, and it just feels right. to me. And Jack, well, his might be a little more, but it feels to me like I got punched real fucking hard in the in yeah the yeah shoulder, same. just the side of my arm shoulder area. That's what it feels like. Uh -huh. So you forget that it's there, and then you move your arm, and you're like, oh right, I got punched. Jack <laughs> feels more like his was punched, but like with a knife. <laughs> so his <laughs> might be a little sharper than what I'm feeling. A pu punched <laughs> with spike brass knuckles. Got right. it. Yeah. Right, yeah. So I mean, small price we, to pay. We haven't had any of the other stuff, though. But uh, but yeah, I know we'll uh, some people, like everyone I've talked to, because we got the Moderna, and everyone yeah, uh, that took got. the Moderna said, yeah, the first shot, you, know, you feel kind of tired, it wipes some people out, but they said the second shot is the one that's the doozy, and I'm like, great. And that's because because we talked to our you know nurse, doctor, whoever was giving the shot. I didn't ask. You would think that you would ask who's giving me the shot. I didn't. I trusted CVS. So <laughs> I, I asked uh, uh, our minister's name because I wanted to know, like, who who is the person who is helping me get life back to normal? Ah, oh, Iris. Nice to meet you, Iris. <laughs> nice. I know that she introduced herself. I do not remember what she said regarding her name, probably because I was anxious about a needle. But anyway, um, so she said that what happens is when the first shot introduces the virus and the antibodies. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you get the second virus, you're getting the second dose, you're getting more antibodies, but those antibodies that are already there recognize that it's a virus. Mm -hmm. So they start attacking it. And what makes you feel sick is when your body is fighting something. That's when you get a fever. That's when you right. get uh, – right. so all of the symptoms are because your body recognizes that this needs to be attacked and it starts attacking it. So it's a good and thing. So it means your body's doing what thing. it's supposed to. It is to. a good thing. It just, you know, isn't fun. Yeah. So oh. I'm like, I'm going to go in with Advil ready to go. Right. But but we got it. We're, we get it in our second one in a month. Mm. And then what is it? A couple weeks after that, we're good to go? Yeah, something like that. So I think we should yeah. be, um, we probably, 
all goes according to plan. We should be fully immunized by the end of April. Yeah. Uh, before the end of April, actually. I could come so. visit you guys. You could. You could. Oh my God! And by then I things will be. Things have started doggies. to. Oh, baby dogs also miss you, you guys, so much. But my baby dogs. I know. We have your priorities. You have your priorities. Yes, that little shit, man. Gus kept <laughs> us up all fucking night last night. He has been so weird about. So we have blackout curtains now, and um, mm-hmm. at first it was it was like a bird, like you blackout curtains, and he's like. <clears throat> You know, uh, and mm-hmm. it was great, but like lately, the past few nights, this week, he's just been super restless, and like he'll just want to. He's like, I want to move. I want to move here. I want to move here. And of course, he can't when he moves. It he, he sleeps in the bed with Genji does too. But Genji like stays in one spot pretty much all night. Right. He's a he's a throw. It's rug. a lot of Genji to move around if Genji wants to move himself. It, it's around. true, right? And but Gus is like, I don't like this position. Well, how about this one? How about this one? And when he moves, he's like, he's like he moves like the fucking Tasmanian devil when he's trying to like find a new spot. And I'm like, Baba. Bubba, can, can you just, can you go about this a little less fucking, like, like, tear assy? God, just, just fucking sleep. <laughs> and I'm just, I just want to, I just want to crush your little head sometimes. Yeah. If it weren't already crushed. <laughs> it is pretty crushed. And so cute. <laughs> it's so cute. Mm. But he is such a little so shit. So today, I... so today it's like, should we just, I, I just have this impulse. I'm not doing it because that'd be cruel. But I have this impulse of every time he falls asleep, I want to be like, hey, what are you doing? Hey, hey. And then yeah. I'm like, don't you dare look at me with your side eye, you little fucker. <laughs> this is what We've you do to us every night. <laughs> yeah, we we have definitely done that to the dogs, all of them, yours included. All maybe, I'm thinking yeah. maybe Gus senses that we got the shot and he can sense that our body is undergoing a change. Uh, and is like, and maybe he's just weirded out by it because Gus does not respond to change well. He is very set in his ways. And if the least thing about his daily routine uh, is different, he he it's, he's very dramatic about yeah. it it's it's yeah, kind of is. hilarious it's kind of he's he gets sensitive. it he's, he's very sensitive it's very dramatic yeah. oh but he and he also likes routine so for he like is very you, much a creature when you guys were here if you guys put him in the crate he hated it because he wasn't mm-hmm. in the crate very often right but here he knew he was going to the crate so he'd just go in there fine it was mm-hmm. like it just is he had to he's get very, to he's his, very yeah, he's very he's got he's got his on. pattern and if it's the pattern is not followed to the fucking letter he gonna let you know yeah he missed, dogs, his, again, he missed his calling as a court Jack clerk. doesn't let them. <laughs> they sleep in the closet. Mm. They sleep in the floor of my closet. So that means that their bedding gets washed regularly. <laughs> so they always have fresh bedding because I don't want my my closet to smell like dog. Um, and they get, you know, cleaned and they have to smell good. So I guess that's a, it's a, a way to make sure you maintain that. Right, but right. Smart. Now um, we have a new neighbor neighbor somebody who lives in the apartments behind us so there's the two dogs that just go to the bathroom on the balcony mm-hmm. and now there's another neighbor back there that leaves one of their dogs there all the time and it makes me so, so mad i hate and that i, I hate how that. is there can i find a home for the dog and then go steal it is that bad is that wrong i'm, I'm sure it's illegal it sounds like the right thing to do but i'm pretty sure it's illegal right? um I don't it's know. Heartbreaking. Like, it's heartbreaking. Because so, why do you have I don't, it? Why do people have why dogs have if they're if just, just gonna like there the whole time? abandon them or just neglect them? I don't understand that. Yeah, I, I, I I've known several people in my life that treated their dogs like that, and I just I can't be friends with someone that does not treat their animal like family. Good family. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, we like, have a lot of family members I would love them? to leave out on a porch, but you know, I mean, the good family, the people that we want to spend time right. with. 
Like, because yeah, dogs, dogs are just, dogs are fucking <laughs> angels. Dogs are fucking they angels. Are. We do not deserve them. And, like, if you're going to get one and just put it out on a fucking balcony all day. I don't get it. It makes or on me a porch. so mad. I don't, I don't. Uh, do you anyway. want to talk about the podcast? Oh, yeah, that's what we're doing. Well, I guess we're not really talking about the podcast. That might have made everybody go, <gasps> what's going on with the podcast? Nothing's happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, I you mean like, you mean do just the do the podcast? Yeah, just let's do, do it. it. What's our, was, what's our sorry. title? <laughs> sorry for everybody that was listening and was like, oh my God. Context not... shifting is hard. Uh, oh, no, sorry. What, can uh, I blame? Oh, can I blame getting the shot? That's what I'm doing. I don't know about you. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry, you guys. I just got my shot yesterday, so sorry, I'm a little forgetful. My body's <laughs> reacting to the microchip, so, you know, That's it's, right. forgive me. <laughs> Jack asked them <laughs> when they started. He's like, so is the microchip going to just stick, like, directly out of my arm? Is it like an antenna? Or And she laughed and then just went along with it. And she's like, yeah, the way that we worked it out, it was really funny. That's great. Like, Yay, I love fun people. <laughs> Not everybody gets us, so it's nice I, when yeah. someone. It is, ni- it is nice. It's nice and rare and nice. So uh, rare. So what's our so title? Rare. What's our title today? Our title is really fun. I love it. I'm very Swear. excited about it. It's called, uh, and this is episode 113. <gasps> Ooh. Ooh. There's probably and nothing also, really what? special about that number. How but have we done it? <laughs> um, and we are actually, we're, we've done research I'm so week. I'm so excited about my story. It's exciting. I've done I'm excited s- about I've mine too. A lot of it took me a minute. Mine. I'll get into. I'll get into. I'll get into it. Mm-hmm. Let's do the title. Okay, so the title is "Menacing Villains to Tingle Your Toes." Tingle your toes. Okay, so that comes from. Uh, <laughs> see if I can say it. Say say it right. Uh, Zorga Mazu. <laughs> the book Zorga Mazu. It's a children's book by Robert Paul Weston. So here's a little excerpt. This is what I I got it from. And it is Zorga Mazu. So go get it. If Zorga Mazu. Zorga Mazu. Okay. Here's a story that's stranger than strange. Before we begin, you may want to arrange a blanket, a cushion, a comfortable seat, and maybe some cocoa and something to eat. I'll warn you, of course, before we commence. My story is eerie and full of suspense, brimming with danger and narrow escapes and creatures of many remarkable shapes. Dragons and ogres and gorgons and more, and creatures you've not even heard of before. And faraway places? There's plenty of those. And menacing villains to tingle your toes. So ready your metal and steady your heart. It's time for my story's mysterious start. Isn't that the best opening we've ever fucking had? I I was like... This is a great title. I'm going to go through the whole book and just gradually read it. um, (laughs) And from now on, all of our titles will come from this book. What's it called? What's it called again? It is called Zorgamazoo. Zorgamazoo. Z-O-R-G-A-M-A-Z-O-O. Zorgamazoo by Robert Paul Weston. Robert Paul Weston. I'm going to give you guys time. I'm going to look this shit up. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so, so what's your subject today? Well, on our last <laughs> uh, episode where we talked about history, a hundred and four years ago, I believe is when that was. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is I, history. I did it as an introduction to some Pittsburgh stuff. So mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. stuck with Pittsburgh, even though it's been a while. Right. Um, we still have the book and some other stuff that I wanted to do. I just True. had to decide what, and that was a challenge. Um, I had a friend, Christina, send me some some options as well. 
But what I decided on, because there are several stories attached to it that uh, I thought would be fun and very dramatic. Uh -huh. <laughs> very. Oh, yes. There's scandal and everything. Oh, I love it. You're going to love it. This is this is really why I chose this. It's the Allegheny County Jail in Pittsburgh, yeah. Pennsylvania, for those who aren't Pittsburgh, sure. Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh. So my sources are Wikipedia, big surprise, Haunted <laughs> Pittsburgh by Timothy Murray, Michelle Smith, and Hayden Thomas, and a post on Haunted Pittsburgh Tours. Nice. So here we go. First, we're going to start with the building history for you. This is for no one else, so you guys can skip for a little bit. <laughs> skip ahead. This is for me. Yeah. This is architecture shit. Okay. The old <laughs> Allegheny County Jail is a part of a complex along with the Allegheny County Courthouse designed by H.H. H. Richardson. The buildings are considered among the finest example of the Romanesque revival style for which Richardson is well known. Uh -huh. The jail was built between 1884 and 1886, um, and I believe that's the year Richardson died, interestingly enough. Hmm. And the courthouse was finished in 1888. The two structures are linked across Ross Street by a bridge of size, which is called for its similarity ah. to the famous bridge in Venice, which I have been to. Bridge of size. It's so cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you had some additions that were made from 1903 to 1905. Um, jail and courthouse were added to the list of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh Historic Designations on December 26, 1972, and they were added to the list um, of National Historic Landmarks on May 11, 1976. A new jail opened in spring 1995, and the original jail now houses the Allegheny County Court of Common Pleas Family Division. Okay. All right. So All it's right. like just like for common pleas, like not like a big pleas, but just like common pleas. Just common pleas. Just common. Yes. Just like I like a plea, but like common. Just nothing too go. special for me. Just, just run like of the mill. Common. Okay. So first, I want to talk about <laughs> Alexander Berkman. He was an anarchist, and in 1892, he was held at the jail. The only reason I'm telling this story and it's connected is because he was actually held at the jail. That's it. That's the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing else to do with the jail other than this. But I wanted to tell this story. Anarchists okay. were all the rage back then. They were, they were, the, right. they were the stock villains of yes. American history. Right, right. So he was held at the jail while awaiting trial for the attempted murder of H.C. Frick. You might remember him from our previous episode involving the Jonestown flood of 1889. Right. He was one of the rich assholes that basically caused the whole flood and then went on to suffer no punishment. <clears throat> one of the rich guys. <clears throat> remember that guy. And we wonder why there's such a thing as anarchists. Right. Well, he may not have been punished, but that doesn't mean he didn't suffer. Not that the death of children should be celebrated because it hurts bad people, but, you know. Right. Still, life wasn't always easy, and sometimes that's a comfort. So, yeah, he had a six-year-old daughter who, in the summer of 1891, swallowed a pin, oh. like a stick pin, right? Oh. oh. And it brought on an illness that eventually killed her. Very sad. Oh. Um, and it said oh. he was so brokenhearted that he did what anyone who loves money more than humanity would do. He put her image on his checks. That's... I didn't know that was a thing in the late nineteenth century. I it so probably I don't it, know was how probably true a, it was probably it was probably a luxury for the very wealthy. I feel they could you could Maybe. because checks were huge. They came in these gigantic books. And That's you, true. You know, and so they were decorated all the time. So yeah, it was certainly possible, but it was it was quite an expense, I would imagine, because it was yeah. uh, 
you know, they didn't have now, the technology mind, to do it. It was all he, done by hand and reproduced with like, you know, ink plates and stuff, I guess. Yeah. Well, you have Frick and Carnegie or mm-hmm. Carnegie, depending upon how you say it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Carnegie was in Scotland at the time, but they were both big robber baron dudes. Mm-hmm. Like hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money is how much they yeah. would have had. Yeah. Hundreds of billions. So yeah. these guys were mega, 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 mega. I mean, money. they owned the fucking world. Right. They were like the top 0.01%. Mm. <laughs> like yeah. The, yeah. They were the Bezos. They were the Elon Musks Ugh. of the time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and they didn't even really Bad pretend taste in that my mouth. much. Carneg- Carnegie did a lot of philanthropy in his later years. But, yeah. you know, research all that. Uh, I'm just, not going to defend the mega wealthy. He was, just, he was just trying to get into heaven. Right, right. So, <laughs> and it was libraries, though, mostly libraries. That's so. nice. Anyway, uh, so in July <laughs> of 1892, Frick was at the very center of one of the most violent labor disputes in American history, the Homestead Strike. Mm. Now, this I went back and forth between doing more of the story on the Homestead Strike and doing or doing the jail, and I, it delayed me. And so I kept going right. back and forth, and... It's been a rough week, I think, and I mm. didn't. the The strike is awful. It is awful, yeah. and yeah. the more I thought about it, the more I realized I didn't want to dwell on it. Mm. If you mm. want to dwell mm. on it, I think it's important. Oh yeah, to it history is. to know about these things. So definitely yeah. look it up because there's a lot going on there. But mm. to sum up, mm. because it's very depressing. So I'm just gonna sum it sum it up. Oof. Uh, <laughs> I put in here, I fucking can't this week. <laughs> That's what I have in my notes. I fucking can't. That's real. That That's was my real shit. Factor. Yeah. So, okay. Workers for the Carnegie Steel Company went on strike. Frick, who was in charge of it, uh, decided to shut them down using 300 armed Pinkerton detectives. Gun battle ensued and left 10 men dead, dozens wounded, and over 8,000 militiamen were called in to handle the, handle the rioting workers. The company hired non-union workers then, also known as scabs, and since the union didn't allow black members, most of those hired were black, mm. which led to mm. some white workers attacking black workers, the whole race thing. It was Ugh. fucking awful, and it's just so indicative of how the rich fucking operate in a society that is built on a foundation of white supremacy. Yep. Fuck. It's awful. And as at the end, as is so often the case, the richest guy won. Mm-hmm. That's the sum up. Yeah. Uh, just God. that little taste. Ugh. Couldn't do it. Uh, Ugh. Dive in, though, if you want. It's, yeah. it's yeah. appalling. Just from what, uh, just constant. Appa- anyway, so a little of two, over two weeks after the strike started, it was still going on at the time. It was a Saturday afternoon. Frick was in his office at 256 Fifth Avenue. The building isn't there anymore, by the way. But even though Frick was the acting head of one of the biggest industrial companies in the world, there was no security guard on duty. At 1.55 p.m., Alexander Berkman burst into Frick's office and at point-blank range, fired his gun right at Frick's head. The bullet landed in the side of his neck. Oh, Frick fell on the floor and scrambled, fighting for his life. And Berkman stood right over him, on top of him, and fired again. That bullet landed on the other side of Frick's neck. Mm. Mm. Frick was seriously wounded, but somehow he got to his feet while bleeding profusely. 
and with the help of another company executive, tackled Berkman. Then, (laughs) Berkman pulled out a knife and stabbed Frick four times. Damn. The dagger is currently on display at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. Okay. By then, a crowd of men rushed into the office and subdued Berkman until the police came and took him away. Apparently, they wanted to just take him out right then, Mm. but Frick was like, no, let the police get him. So, Frick survived because, of course, he fucking did. Remember, this is the dude that had a like, there was a deal with the devil, something like that going on with this guy, because he was creepily lucky. He's the one who was also supposed to be on the Titanic. But, like, right, last minute right. they canceled. This is Frick, mm. right? Ugh, so I hate him. <laughs> this is strange. Ber- Berkman later said that he only missed Frick's head because he had been dazzled by sunlight streaming through Frick's window. Mm. The only problem with that story was that there was no sunlight shining through the window. The office faced north, and no light came in at 2 p.m. in the summer. Huh. Frick didn't talk about those details for about 20 years. It was then that he told a reporter that when Berkman fired the first shot, his six-year-old daughter, who had died the previous summer, appeared at his side. He said, he saw her, and quote, as clearly and as real as if she had been physically present. For an instant, her presence was so real and so corporeal that I felt like stretching arms out to her, end quote. Wow. It God, seems that I have Berkman so many mixed feelings. Not... I know, I know. Uh, it seems Berkman wasn't dazzled by the sunlight. He was dazzled by the spiritual light that surrounded the little girl's apparition. Berkman spent time in the Allegheny County Jail before eventually serving out his 14-year sentence in Western Penn. Mm. And then he ended up writing a book about it and a whole bunch of stuff. But one of the other things that's interesting is Fritz or Frick's daughter, uh, who kind of survived him and and did a lot of uh, trying to save the family name and all that kind of shit. When she died, uh, the the weeks leading up to her death, she's reported seeing her sister as a six-year-old as well. Whoa. So it makes you wonder if he was supposed to die (laughs) and he just got the wrong message. Like he saw her and instead of being like, oh, I'm going to go into your arms, he was like, you're right. I should keep those men down. Or it was Satan in the guise of his daughter to manipulate him into being an evil piece of shit. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It also, it also could be a story he just fucking made up to make it look like, to make it, to to ward off people going, man, fuck you. You deserve to die. You should have died. You're a piece of shit. And he's like, but I was saved by a holy power. So clearly I didn't deserve to die. Is that part of the story is that he also was driven to shut down the strike because he felt like that's why she was there to keep him alive so he could keep the strike, the the strikers from winning, and that's why he was so hardcore fighting against the strike. See, that sounds like a bullshit narrative that he's like, see, look, it's divine, Linz. I'm just a mouthpiece for the pharaoh. It's the pharaoh complex. For the devil. For the yeah, it's for his fucking pocketbook. Yeah. That's so it. that's a. Oh, that's I hate a, this guy. Really I hate this guy. That's a ghost story. Yeah, like, oh, the worst. But that's but fascinating. But it is an important I mean, ghost story in history. It is. It is. And you know what's? Yeah. It's it's interesting to note that like he could have really, you know, what if, 
<laughs> what if the ghost is totally real and he just didn't understand what it meant? And he was like, and maybe he's just a fucking absolute narcissist who thought, oh my God, you're right. Like a narcissist, yeah, exactly. a narcissist would see, a, would see the ghost of Jacob Marley and be like, you're right. I have taken too much on in my own life. I should cut out everyone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's narcissists are not. The you wrong can't message. Yeah, they get the raw. They, they come away with the wrong lesson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe his That's daughter what... appeared. Maybe his daughter appeared because I think it's telling that uh, his assassin, his would-be assassin, saw her too. So maybe she was like, "Can you kill him, please, before he does worse things?" <laughs> right. Get him right here. And she was like pointing, but she didn't realize there was so much light, and so he was like right there. And then she was like here, and the light, and he aimed wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Or it's, it's so complicated. The so other complicated. option is it's all bullshit, and the guy was just a really bad shot. I mean, he also. Also stabbed him four times and failed at that. Like, what a fuck up that guy was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you were right there, my dude. Like, you got it. There was no security in the building and you still got caught. Mm, it's weird. Anyway, it's, yeah. it's it's a shame. Clearly. It's a shame. Clearly the devil is involved is all I'm saying. <laughs> Evidence suggests the devil had some interests is what I'm saying. You know, the devil might okay. be frick. So now let's go back to Allegheny Jail. I had to get that story in. It was really good. <laughs> it's good. It's a good okay. one. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a good story. It's a good story. Um, another major dramatic juicy story comes from the jail involving forbidden love, the warden's wife, and two violent and very popular brothers. Violent and popular this brothers. One's so good. I'm so it's so good. Okay. Sounds hot. So for several months in 1901. Pittsburgh was rocked by almost nightly robberies committed by a trio of vicious bandits, brothers Edward and Jack Biddle and their partner, Walter Dorman. Hmm. The robbers were audacious. Uh, <laughs> they were crazy. They came at night. I'm so excited about this. They came at night while their prey slept. The lucky victims were chloroformed oh. into a stupor. The unlucky ones were ordered out of bed to turn over their valuables and be terrorized for fun. One time, an old woman refused to cooperate, so one of the Biddle boys calmly busted a chair into pieces and used one of its legs to beat her almost to death. Uh-huh. Not as cute. Not as cute. That part's not as fun. We'll no, get I don't like that. that. I don't like okay. that. I don't know. The newspapers wouldn't even print some of the shit these guys did. God damn. Right. And these are newspapers at the time that would, that would say be like, exactly why you died in oh, your yeah. obituary. Blood, guts, all the scandal, everything. Right. Drunk, hit by a train. Like, <laughs> fucking that's fine. But some of the shit they did was not. <sighs> so eventually, during the course of a robbery gone bad, grocer Thomas Connie was murdered at his home above his store. The police suspected the Biddles were the culprits. So the next morning, cops went to the boarding house where they were living and arrested them. But not before Ed mortally wounded one detective and shot another one in the arm. The brother's partner, Dorman, immediately began confessing. He blamed Jack and Ed for the grocer's murder. In all, 41 burglaries were pinned on the the three. Damn. Very productive. Yeah. Dorman was given a life sentence, but Jack and Ed were sentenced to be hanged. And they awaited that fate at the Allegheny County Jail. Enter into our dramatic reading. 35-year-old Kate Soffel. S-O-F-F-E-L. Soffel? Souffle. Souffle. <laughs> Kate Souffle. That's her real name. So-oh. <laughs> so 
She was the wife of the warden of the jail, Peter Soffel. They've been married since she was 16 and had four children. At the time, they had warden's residences at the jail, so the whole family lived at the jail with all mm, the prisoners. Okay. Right? It was pretty pretty normal back then. Okay. Right, yeah. So, turns out Ed and Jack were pretty handsome because they were very popular with the ladies who saw their pictures in the paper. Mrs. Soffel started visiting them in the cells so she could do the Christian thing and read Bible passages to them. What are their last names again? I want to look them up. <laughs> uh, Biddle, B-I-D-D-L-E, Biddle. Biddle Brothers. Yeah, there are pictures. They're like sketch pictures of B-I-D-D-L-E? B-I-D-D-L-E, yeah. Okay. Middle Brothers. Uh, Sorry. So, I just want a point of reference while you're... Yeah, okay. no, I get All right. it. Okay. Uh, All right. Kate and... I know, especially for the time, right? They're not... Yeah. Yeah, like, hot by those standards. Okay. Oh, damn. Look at that, that jawline, though. I know. I mean, he's yeah. a piece of shit, but I mean, damn. And I feel like back then, you know, we, you knew looking at a picture the idea of what they actually look like. So they could f- romanticize the rest of the features. It's before probably, we had all those filters. You know. So, put in, yeah, put those rose-colored filters <laughs> on the picture. Can I use Valencia, so, please? This this is going in the Gazette. Um. I, so, okay, Kate is visiting them. And giving them Bible verses, and she becomes infatuated with Ed, who mm. was eleven years younger than her. Oh my! Okay, you, you get right. it, you get so, it, you get it, girl. I know, get it, Kate. Uh, a flirtation started, and the Biddle boys started telling her how innocent they were. Kate eventually wrote to the governor, pleading for their release. The governor was like, "The fuck they are, no, ma'am." <laughs> so she took it into her own, took matters into her own hands. Her own little Christian hands. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. On the evening of January 29th, 1902, Kate knocked her husband out with chloroform. (laughs) Her husband, (laughs) the warden, she knocked him out. This is good. This is already going well. Okay, so by 4.15 in the morning, (laughs) on the 30th, so this was evening before... Early, early morning the next day, the Biddle boys escaped. Kate had already provided them with hacksaws and a pistol. Upon emerging from their cells, the brothers grappled with guards, fracturing the skull of one and shooting another in the hip. They locked up the guards in a dungeon and then burst through the library door where Kate was waiting for them. She took them out through the warden's residence and onto Ross Street. Scandal. So much scandal. Kate decided to go full on into this drama by leaving with the brothers. The escape (laughs) was only discovered. In for a penny, in for a pound. She's like, I'm going with you. And they were like, do it. Okay, so (laughs) the escape was only discovered when the day shift guards came on duty at 6 a.m. So they had a two-hour head start. Uh, They, let's see. Um, Yeah. So. Miss, on sad sad note, Mr. Soffel, Kate's husband, decided he had no choice but to resign as warden after this. Um, the next day, the trio was overtaken and gunned down in a Wild West-style shootout on a snow-covered road. Someone Damn. needs to write a fucking poem about this. I bet they already have. They've written a they've written a play and a movie, and like in the play, well, like a time, well, like a modern like a opera. Oh my God! The horse that they actually used to get away was used in the play. What? And Kate actually, 
this is a little bit of a spoiler. Kate wanted to play herself. She was not allowed to. Um, but then, like, the real names were used, and the, wow. the warden came in, and he was like, don't fucking use me and my children's names. Wow. And it was like a whole fucking thing. Anyway. Whoa. Oh, my okay, God. That's so, so crazy. <laughs> there's a shootout. There's, now you know why I was so excited about this one. So there's no a shit, shootout. Right? Both brothers died within 24 hours of this shootout. Mm. Kate also suffered a gunshot wound, but she survived. Oh. Mm. She underwent surgery to extract a bullet and developed symptoms of pneumonia. Mm. As to how she was shot, Kate told three different stories. One, yeah. she shot herself. Two, Ed shot her. And three, the police shot her. A lost letter <laughs> from Ed to Kate was found in the snow near where the shootout took place. It revealed that they had been planning their escape since December 2nd. Kate had fallen in love with Ed in November, and Ed started writing love letters to her. Originally, Ed wanted her to flee to Canada and meet up with them. No one knows for sure if Ed's feelings for, for Kate were actually sincere, but before his death, Jack reported that if it were not for Kate, he and Ed would have stolen two horses and could have been 100 miles away. But instead, the Biddles had decided they couldn't let the poor woman go off by herself after betraying her husband and family for them. Mm-hmm. So Maybe they just so, kept her around to have a hostage if it came to it. Maybe. I don't know. You never know. You never know. I like to think that maybe it started off in my movie. It started off as him taking advantage, but then he really did care for her. And it, Jack was like, fucking bitch. In, in my movie. <laughs> we need two horses. In my movie, they didn't even like her. They didn't want to escape. She made them because she was, like, obsessed. So she was, like, a crazy Yo, fangirl. That's good, too. I feel like this shows we have different relationships some extreme fandom. I just, I could, I think it'd be hilarious if she's like, I've gotten you out. They're like, no, 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 we don't want to get away. We don't getting get out. out. I just chloroform my fucking husband. You are mother. getting now. Go steal that fucking horse. Also, help me God. Like, I just see that. And they're like, yeah. So they're she's like, the one that <laughs> shot someone in the hip and broke the skull. It was all her the whole time. I feel like if that was the case, we would know because history. I mean, she really did want to pl- blame women for she shit. She did. Yeah, <laughs> but but not, but not strong women. They liked women. They they blamed women because women were weak and sinister. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. if she was if she but was like this mastermind, to be like it badass. was all this one woman, and it's like no. Maybe, no, yeah, wasn't. yeah. I just think it's a funnier yeah. story if she's like well-meaning like and that. she's just kind of like, "Come on, guys!" And they're like, "We're, we're what? We're doing this? Oh, okay, why not?" Uh, okay, we're gonna go. <laughs> play along. Shit, play along. She's helping us. <laughs> okay, so it speaks volumes that she wanted to play herself in the production that of is the story. True. Like that is true. interesting. So I love uh, it. I after love her it. Deaths, the Biddles' bodies were brought back to Pittsburgh by train. Crowds of people, mostly women, formed outside the, uh, of the South Side funeral home where the brothers were laid out the morning of their viewing, and the streets were jammed for blocks due to the crowds. Streetcar officials reported it was the biggest day in the company's history. Wow. Thousands who worked in the South Side mills had to walk to work that day as the streetcars were filled with crying, hysterical women. Hysterical. When the doors of the mortuary opened, five thousand people again mostly women viewed the bodies at a rate of 55 a minute good lord mary dale 25 of Northside, did not go to view the bodies but instead wrote jack a letter about her undying devotion telling him that they would meet in heaven 
then she killed herself by drinking poison. Whoa. Newspaper clippings and photos of the Biddles were found pasted to her bedroom walls. Whoa. I know. That's insanity. I know. Okay, so good. Okay, so Kate was sen- sentenced to two years in prison, but she was let out early. She died in 1909, like seven years later, from typhoid fever. Um, but apparently her daughter worked in the hospital where she died. So mm. she might have actually got some reconnection. I like to believe there was a little mm. connection there at the end. Okay, mm. so the office of the last deputy warden of the old jail was actually the location of Kate Soffel's bedroom. The deputy warden said, I'm not a believer in the spirit world, but there were some creepy things that happened there. Like when a picture on the wall moved on its own. And when he heard what seemed to be sand shifting in the walls, and when he felt a cold hand on his arm that he believes was Mrs. Soffel. Ooh, I love it. I mean, then why not? you have a widely circu- circulated news article in 1907 that stated prisoners at the Allegheny County Jail were complaining about seeing the ghosts of the Biddle brothers roaming the halls. They never got out. Oh, they just thought they'd get away, but they're like, ah, damn it, we gotta spend the afterlife here? Son of a bitch, we should have just, damn it. Yeah. We should have just played okay, out so, our sentence. <laughs> the last thing I wanna cover, so that's the, that drama. That's, that's so the good. juicy so good. scandal. That's so good. Okay, so the last thing I wanna cover is the haunting of murderers row. Ooh. The New York Times, and you can, if you have a um, account with New York Times, mm-hmm. you can read it to this day. So it was reported oh, yeah, on you September. You can access 6th. the archives. Yeah, in the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, it was reported on September sixteenth of nineteen oh seven that W. A. Culp, who who was on trial for the murder of his brother, killed himself while being housed on Murderers Row earlier that mm. month. Since then. 14 other murderers housed on Murderer's Row claimed that every night, Culp's ghost came to visit them. Every one of the reports claimed definitively that it was Culp. These murderers also admitted that they were terrified of the ghost and were afraid to be trapped there with his spirit. Apparently, their complaints were believed and their desires respected, which is extremely unusual. The warden moved the entirety of Murderer's Row to another part of the prison to get oh, them away from oh, the ghost. Oh. Or another, crazy, right? There are no other reports of Culp's ghost being seen, so he must have stayed behind or, you know, crossed yeah. over, whichever. Damn. Yeah. Crazy. Ooh. Isn't that crazy? Ooh. Like, I love that it's nothing, enough like, that the warden's There's enough like, the warden's like, probably. fine, let's just fucking... And that's, a, yeah, they, you gotta figure, that's a dangerous process. Whenever there's a mass yeah. move like that, that's people are gonna try to escape. There's gonna be attempts to do to stir some shit up, or, you know, so it's like, that's... Uh, yeah. In my movie, he moves them to a more haunted area. <laughs> oh, really? You don't like Culp? Culp scares you? I'm Culp? gonna move you over to where the Biddle Boys are. How do you like that? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, they're just reading the song of Solomon, uh, the song of Solomon uh, together, <laughs> singing songs to Kate and writing fucking poetry. No, thank you. So, there are more reports of spookiness at the jail: things moving, voices, what have you, the usual stuff. But what makes this jail so interesting to me are, per usual, the history and the drama behind the hauntings. Ooh, yeah, that's well, so good. I love it. Engine. Yes, good I standard. love it. Thank you. It's got crime. It's got passion. It's got adultery. It's got 
death, murder, shootouts, a horse. In the snow. In the snow. On a horse in a snow. Why has Martin Scorsese not made this film yet? I don't know. It, there has been uh, a film made of it, though, I think. Yeah? I don't yeah. Remember. I've never heard of it, though. Ah, oh, that's so great. So great. All right, well, yeah. let's uh, let's take a little break to uh, refill our, our uh, non-alcoholic beverages. <laughs> for you, uh, not I, for Damn me. it. Yeah, see, I took a Tylenol earlier, so I really shouldn't mix them. Um, it's also anyway. the middle of the day, your time. It's the end of the day, my time. It's Friday. You can day drink. It's in the fucking lens. I'm an adult. <laughs> but you're still not drinking. I'm not. I'm not. Because I'm trying to be responsible and not kill my kidneys uh, or my liver. So and let's it's take also a- the middle of the day where you are. It's the not the middle of the day. It's three in the afternoon. That's not the middle For of the day. For you, that is the middle of your day. When did you wake up? 11? 12? 11. That's not even the middle of the day. It's still morning for me then. <laughs> See? See? Fine. I feel so called out. <laughs> Let's go have a break. And I am going to have a chocolate chip cookie. And then come back and tell okay. you my story, which is real um, creepy. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I'm it's so good. It. Okay. All right. Back in a break. Hey, it's the commercial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a commercial for our Patreon. Please Yay. help us and support us and join the Patreon. We love you if you're already a member of the Patreon. We have a really nice Discord chat that happens twice a month. We, we love it. Do it super we have an cool. All skate. Everybody that's on the Discord uh, is uh, that chat will be on the. We just said those dates. Michael. It was the the thirteenth. It was at the thirteenth and the twenty fourth. Was it? Let the me. 13th. At <laughs> On the 27th. 4 p.m. Let's see. Wait, I'm going to double check. It's okay. the 13th. Yes, the 13th and the 27th. Hey, I got it right. Yeah, 13th and 27th. Nice. 13th and 27th at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, the first one will be for everybody that's on the Discord, and the second one will be our for our Phantasm tier. If you are a member on the Patreon, you have to be on a Discord tier to be able to go, but then it's a really great community. Um, it super, is super fun indeed. and very, very supportive, but we accept and love any help that's given our way. We do. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for your your support everybody that is a member uh please consider being a member we would appreciate your support as well and of yes. course we always love all of our listeners so thank you guys so much for being such great fans of this podcast we love you <laughs> and we're back oh <laughs> uh, we just had this whole thing about me standing because i just didn't feel like sitting down for this one because i'm like yeah it's hard it's hard to sit down in the booth for me because uh, mm. this, uh, my ass is big. I've got a large ass. Oh, you it's better not, shut it, the it's, hell up. No, to I me. do. It just it, there's a lot of surface area to my ass, and so and is the there? stool. It's like I might as well be sitting on a hat. And so it would be it's, just, it's a just a hat. Just a hat, like on some stilts. But I mean, it's it's not it's not comfortable after a while. And if I can stand up, I've got a little more. I can I can move more without it sounding like I'm on a ship because this fucking stool is so squeaky. Also, it's yeah. further away from the, the little AC unit, which I know was going the whole time. So, Matt, I love you. I'm sorry, but now the AC has turned out a little bit, so you don't have to, like, edit out everything while I'm talking because it sounds like I'm recording next to a helicopter uh, if the thing is on. But it gets so hot in here, especially this time yeah. of day because the sun is coming right through the window next door to my next to my booth. So it's like, oh, yeah. And by standing, I can at least be out of the sun a little bit because it's, it, it hits me at a certain cool angle. It is very cool in Texas right now. So it is 65 degrees upstairs. Right. It's. I think it's in the mid seventies here, but it's just the sun comes. The sun bears down really hard, yeah. uh, and well, because and there's so much concrete in this area, to talk in a microphone. It really do. It, does. <laughs> it really do. We have impassioned exchanges. We do. We do very. I mean, we we talk. We we laugh. We cry. We fight. We shout not at, at each, each other. other. We don't really fight. <laughs> Let's fight about not fighting. We don't ever fight. What are you talking about? Like, never. I don't Stop. even know what you're saying. I don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
And scene. Okay, and scene. so... Uh, I'm really excited about this one. I've actually wanted to do this story for a little while, um, but I hadn't had a chance to really do the research it deserves because it's such a weird story. Without the research to back it up, it's r too easy to write off. But it is not, in my humble opinion, write-offable once you've done a little bit of digging. So, um... I call this Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf. My Ooh. sources are, of course, Wikipedia, a documentary by director Seth Breedlove called The Bray Road Beast, and uh, the really, really good book for those so interested by Linda Godfrey, The Beast of Bray Road, Tailing Wisconsin's Werewolf. You heard right. Ooh. Werewolf. Okay. So I had a little fun with writing this, so I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump right into it. Just tell the story it. as it unfolds. Know. Tell me everything, Michael. Okay. It's winter of nineteen ninety-one. Linda Godfrey, writer and illustrator for the Walworth County Week, is assigned to cover a bizarre story unfolding in the Bray Road area of Elkhorn, Wisconsin. You now and she I happens to be were in middle school, about to be in high school, like junior high to high. Yeah, um, yeah, true. We were, we were at a crossroads. True, true. I was probably I think I was a freshman. By then, in 94, in 94. No, no, you're right. You're right. Eighth grade. Yeah. Well, okay. okay, so she happens to be working on her first true crime book at the time, a book called The Poison Widow, which tells the story of murderous Wisconsinite Myrtle Shroud. In 1922, Myrtle spiked her wealthy husband's prune juice with strychnine and uh, at the urging of a secret lover. The decades-old scandal takes a lot of detective work, hustle, and journalistic chops to unearth. In fact, if not for Godfrey's consummate skill, Shroud's diabolical misdeeds might still be buried today. And indeed, it's this talent for finessing obscure details and uh, to the surface and interviewing reluctant witnesses that will come in handy when she finds herself embroiled in a very different kind of mystery. Ooh. I have so mystery. much respect. I have so much respect for her and all the fucking work she's done. It's kind of badass. She's kind of living the dream. <laughs> uh, the town of Elkhorn got its name in 1836 when someone named Colonel Samuel Phoenix spotted a rack of uh, elk antlers hanging from a tree, which is kind of an odd origin story because elk aren't native to the region. <laughs> um, but whatever, that's that's the official story. Today, with a population of just over 10,000, the small, picturesque hamlet is known as the epitome of Christmas time here in America. Every holiday season, local artist Jan Castle Reed produces a new watercolor depicting Elkhorn's lavishly decorated town square for use in a line of rather high-end greeting cards. Funny, since the other thing Elkhorn is most known for these days is its resident werewolf. <laughs> It's like Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, quote, Bray Road is an unlikely place to hunt for monsters of any type, writes Godfrey. It's a country lane lined with old family farms, marshy meadows, cornfields, and scrubby woods. The road serves as an alternate route to the county, uh, the county law enforcement office. The what? Um, the the road serves as an alternate alternative route to the uh, country uh, the county law enforcement offices the nursing you home said and cunty the at first cunty, the cunty the cunty law enforcement my Freudian slip is showing I um, just enjoyed that and I wanted to hear it again <laughs> the road serves as an alternative route to the country uh, law enforcement offices nursing home and hospital so it isn't exactly isolated either nonetheless people were claiming something really strange was out there. A fledgling journalist, when all this was going on, Godfrey also, at the time, aspires to be a nationally syndicated cartoonist. She's really good at drawing. The, the county <laughs> week is as good a place to start as any. To keep the lights on while researching the poison widow, Godfrey churns out illustrations for the modest, freely circulated paper, 
Diane is eventually roped into contributing full-fledged articles because she ain't too shabby with wordsmithing uh, as well. <laughs> uh, one day, her friend, a school bus driver, it's always how it happens in these small towns. It's like, hey, you, you busy? You want to write an article? Can you draw too? Hey, do you want to sweep up? <laughs> it's like, this is how it goes, you know? Um, one day, her friend, who's a school bus driver, spills some rather sinister tea. Word is, some local teens have seen a wolf man. That's right, a wolf man skulking around the area of Bray Road. Godfrey's editor catches wind of this and thinks it's just the thing to pad the slow week between Christmas and New Year. He asks Godfrey to collect a few eyewitness accounts, sketch up a good cheesy illustration because after all the paper's motto is never be boring and like that <laughs> godfrey great is fucking motto it's great right and like that godfrey is on the case before diving in she nonchalantly fields the idea to a friend's 15 year old daughter and is shocked to hear not smirking whateverism <laughs> as you would <laughs> think whatever <laughs> but support the Bray Road Wolfman is quite a rallying point among local kids. They're all talking about it with the same zeal as they might a homecoming scandal or a breakup between friends. The creature is said to lurk in the cornfields and evergreens on either side of Bray Road, emerging at night to frighten unsuspecting drivers. Dozens of friends of friends of friends have spotted him. Uh, many more have heard eerie, deep-throated howls echoing from the moonlit meadows. And though most reports of this half-man, half-canine are secondhand, because of course they are, it doesn't take Godfrey long to track down an honest-to-God witness. Halloween night, 1991, high school senior Doris Gibson is driving down Bray Road alone. It's foggy. She's startled by a sudden loud thud as her front tire lifts jarringly off the ground. Just knowing she's hit someone's dog, Gibson stops the car about 60 feet up the road and gets out to check. She sees nothing. When she it. walks... From a di that is a significant distance. Yeah, but when you're going down like a 50-mile-an-hour road, like 60 feet right. is not... I mean, you, that's, yeah. you, you, can, you can hit that in like maybe 10 seconds in the time it takes you to like process that you've just run over yeah. something, right? Um so she sees nothing. When she walks to the rear of her car, however, a sight meets her that will scar the poor girl for life. A tall, hulking creature is bounding toward her at full tilt. Now, though in the fog, she can only indistinctly make out the creature's top half, which appears covered in fur. As she dives back into her car, the distinct rhythm of two feet, not four, padding across the pavement is obvious to her. I've never seen a human run like that, she will later tell Godfrey, and my uncle was a track star. So running from where she thought <laughs> running she hit something. Running towards her. Like, yeah, but from where from she thought that she area. Yeah, toward the back of her car, where she'd gone back behind to look to check her trunk to see if there's any damage. And she looks up and back to where the direction she just hit something in comes this fucking thing through the fog, bounding on two legs. It's massive, it's covered with hair, and it's foggy she too. So she just sees this. So she is like car. dives back in the fucking car, goes away. Now, um, Wow. <laughs> the creature yeah. leaps, making contact with the back of her car as Doris peels out for all she's worth. Later, she finds deep gashes across the trunk, consistent with two sets of massive claws. I wonder what kind of car it was. <laughs> Godfrey says in the, in the book, but I can't remember. It's, it's just, I want it, it to be a Toyota Tercel. It might have been. You remember those? Uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is in my movie. It's a Toyota so herself. So that's that's the first witness that Godfrey talks to, um, who is like, yeah, this shit. And and God and and Godfrey's convinced that Gibson is not making this up. And she also mm. shows her the back of the car, and there are gashes on. It's not it's not possible to determine what actually made those gouges, but they are consistent with what she's claiming. Right. While driving home from work, 
a few nights later, around 1.30 a.m., a woman named Gloria Indrizi, Gloria Indrizi, single mother and manager of a local watering hole called the Jury Room, sees a strange figure crouched in a ditch. A massive animal with pointed ears is sitting on its haunches with its back to her, gnawing at what appears to be fresh roadkill, which it's holding in its hands. As if this weren't unsettling enough, when Gloria nears, the creature turns its head sharply and scowls, its eyes eerily reflecting her headlights. It was kneeling, she later tells Godfrey. Its elbows were up and its claws were facing out, so I knew it had claws. So it's like it's like, you know, holding this this dead possum or armadillo or whatever roadkill it is, and it's, you know, almost like, you know, uh, like you see people like drinking water dramatically from a river. It like that's kind of what it looks like. Um Ew. And Godfrey will later sketch that for the article she's putting together, right? Now, uh She was very talented. She could sketch. Yeah, she was an artist first, and then she became a writer. A little later after that, like, hey, you want to write too? Because you're good at this. She's she's an artist. She's an artist. Um, She's multifaceted. And a detective. This woman is kind of my spirit animal in some ways. I'm like, oh, she's good (laughs) at a lot of different things. She's interested in a lot of good things, uh, in a lot of things, and she happens to be, I think, very good at them. Um, So... uh, where was I? Indrizi describes the animal she sees as dark brownish gray, covered with fur, the size of an average man, and about, on average, 150 pounds. I cannot for the life of me how people look at someone and go, oh, they're this much in pounds. I, I can't do that. I don't know why. I can't. Yeah. Um, now, Gloria scours the public library for anything that might explain what she's seen, because at first she keeps this to herself. Right. She doesn't want people to think, I've, what the fuck is that? She's not telling anyone. And this will be a running theme as Godfrey researches and finds yet more and more reliable witnesses that they have. None of them have come forward in a public way. Um, so Gloria's a crazy story. It is. It is. Now, Gloria. So Gloria Andrizi is in the library. She's looking for stuff. Alas, not a single indigenous beast catalog in the literature remotely fits the bill. No known canine species approaches the creature in size and the dimensions are all wrong for a bear. It's only after stumbling across an illustration of a werewolf in a book called The Golden Book of the Mysterious, published in 1976, that Gloria (laughs) decides to contact the local animal control officer, John Fredrickson. Fredrickson. That's hard for me to say. John Fredrickson. (laughs) Fredrickson. And that's my, and that's, this, to me, this lends a lot of veracity to the story because she doesn't go to the paper. She doesn't go to the police. She's like, I'm going to talk to animal control because if anyone knows what the fucking thing this is, it's this guy. Well, you and know? if anybody's getting a report. So she's about... clearly trying to figure out, well, oh, yes, yes. We'll get to that, as I like to say. Um, okay. Now, as Gloria and Fredrickson, Fredrickson, as Gloria <laughs> and John speak in his John office <laughs> one late afternoon, running theory after theory up the flagpole, when the question comes up as to whether the beast could be something otherworldly. Several books behind his desk mysteriously fly off the shelves. By now, Fredrickson, whose duties usually involve cracking down on puppy mills, has become something of an expert on the Bray Road beast. Godfrey pays him a visit to pick his brain for her article. He hands her a manila envelope labeled Werewolf Filled with eyewitness accounts. Once the file was shown to me, Linda writes, the story became news, something the public had a right to know about. We agreed I'd talk to the witnesses, do some kind of illustration, and use the piece as the centerfold story in the Sunday's edition. We figured people would have fun or fright with it for a few weeks, and then it would be forgotten, as most stories are. We figured wrongly. 
Indeed, when Linda Godfrey's first article appears on December 29, 1991, the newspaper office is flooded with corroborating reports. Turns out that two years earlier, a 10-year-old girl named Heather Bowie, B-O-W-E-Y, had seen the creature around dusk while sledding with her cousins. What the children had first taken as a large dog loping near the creek stood on its hind legs and stared at them. The beast held their gaze for what seemed like minutes before the children at last grew alarmed and set off running like hell. To their terror, it gave chase, following them halfway home before finally turning back and disappearing into a cornfield. Marty Borner, director of the Lakeland Animal Shelter, investigated reports of strange three-clawed uh, three tracks near Simmons' feed mill. He'd never seen anything like those tracks in his life. An employee of the nearby Burger King reported glimpsing a man-like creature running at ridiculous speeds near where the tracks were found. Now, John Fredrickson was inclined to believe the creature had a perfectly down-to-earth explanation, because two years prior, he'd captured a giant husky in the town of Geneva, just a few miles from Bray Road. The animal was euthanized on account of it having attacked two people pretty violently. Quote, it was the Ooh. big it was one of the biggest meanest dogs I've ever had to handle. He would later tell so Godfrey. So weird being a husky. I know, right? Things I think of, it's random. Sorry. Now, in March of the same year, the same year that that Fredrickson's had to, had had to put down the husky from Geneva, uh, a farmer named Mike Etten saw the creature in full moonlight. And it being early spring, the corn wasn't present to obscure his view. He described the creature as a large dog sitting, quote, as a raccoon sits. In typical fashion, it noticed him, glared, and made a beeline for the evergreens at the edge of the field. He'd assumed at the time it had been a bear. Only later, when the Bray Road beast craze was in full swing, did Eaton reconsider, though he, like Fredrickson, believes the beast is just a large, stray dog. Either way, Elkhorn gets into the spirit of things. Lakeland Bakery offers werewolf cookies. One local bar puts a silver bullet special on the menu and illegally sells T-shirts printed with Godfrey's illustration for the paper. The paper's uh -oh. food writer concocts a recipe for werewolf a la Don, which calls for a werewolf no more than 200 years old, silver bullets, and a full moon. A pub in Illinois uh, buses thrill-seekers to the area for werewolf tours. Self-styled uh, self werewolf hunters prowl Bray Road after dark, marching through private fields with high-powered rifles, often peeping into farmhouse windows and scaring the shit out of people living mm. there. Mm -hmm. One prankster posts an official-looking highway sign on the road that reads, Werewolf Area. <laughs> Another makes a life-sized werewolf cutout from plywood and props it up between two stone deer in someone's yard. <laughs> the Smiles Ride-a-thon, benefiting special needs children, serves beast dogs and werebecue on its tongue-in-cheek horseback hunt for the creature. A colorful uh, huckster going by the name of Colonel Daniel Beam rolls into town selling werewolf capture permits at $2.50 a pop. A disgruntled former employee caught staking out his old boss's driveway with a gun claims he was merely keeping an eye out for the beast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Before the hull, this is my favorite, before the hullabaloo dies down, Republican State Representative Chuck Coleman will run an ad campaign alleging that the werewolf fully endorses him for the Senate. Quote, both of us know how to survive in a woods full of investigative reporters. Coleman wins by a pretty wide margin. <laughs> I mean, I certainly disagree with him politically, but that is a fucking smooth <laughs> move. And I mean, they, they went all in. They like had a guy dressed up as a werewolf in one ad where he's like, oh, I'm yes, I'm totally assigned. I'm, I'm voting for I'm voting for Coleman. Like, it's, 
It's hilarious. That is now, amazing. But then, of course, I think, you know, they're serving food. And when you think about it, like, depending upon the kind of werewolf you ha- you are dealing with, is this a born a wolf that has turned into a man? Is it a man right. that's been turned into a right. wolf? Are you right. cannibalizing by eating? Swear. These are questions that Jack is going to ask me later, and we're going to spend the rest <laughs> of the night talking about it because of werewolf, the apocalypse. And the world. Anyway, go ahead. I love it. <laughs> the Walworth County Sheriff's Department tries to stem the commotion by releasing a statement saying the beast is just a misbegotten dog or a coyote and has already been put down, which is not true, and people are not buying it. One rather far-fetched explanation proffered by Lieutenant Gerald Watson claims the creature is just, quote, a coyote with a deformed leg that sticks out in such a way that makes it look like the animal standing, end quote. How the fuck that works is just as... That's so easy. It's Venus. Swamp gas. On the opposite end of that spectrum, several readers write the uh, the country week, the county week, excuse me, opining that the werewolf is the result of government-sponsored genetic experiments gone horribly awry. By February, (laughs) by February 1992, Linda's story breaks in the national tabloids. The Sun, which is headquartered in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, runs the headline Wisconsin Wolfman on its front page. Disgusted eyewitnesses watch him eat roadkill. The story reads, the flesh-eating beast of Bray Road has been terrorizing residents of a rural town for the last few years and keeping them locked in their homes after nightfall. Witness names are fudged and their accounts embellished. A photo of someone wearing a cheesy werewolf mask and crouching in the shadows doesn't exactly add an air of veracity to the Sun article. Godfrey receives a letter. Also, it's a Sun article. I remember all those when we <laughs> were right. kids, right? Yes. The, the Bat Baby. That's bat, one bat, of, bat Boy. Bat, bat Boy uh, with me. Um, fucking, um, you know, President Nixon shaking hands with Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, like all of the crazy shit they Satan's used to come up with. Satan's face in a mushroom cloud. All yeah. the classics. I'm all sure the, the beast. I'm sure. The, I'm sure I've seen oh, yeah. that one. Yeah, but you imagine know Grandma it, read it. Goes it. You know oh, of course. Was, okay. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're like that's news. That's news. That's news. <laughs> and you balanced it out with the Reader's Digest. That's what you did. <laughs> and those ended up in the bathroom. So after the just, tabloids yeah. run with it, and it just becomes this ridiculous national story, Godfrey receives a letter from a Mrs. Bushman who is none too pleased with the mockery the Beast is being subjected to by the national press. Dear Linda Godfrey, the letter says, just to let you and others who make light of seeing the creature know there is something running around in your area. The letter goes on to say that Mrs. Bushman's husband, while en route to visit his mother in a nearby nursing home, had seen a giant wolf-like beast sprinting on all fours across the road in front of his car. Just five days after this sighting, turns out someone with presumably no knowledge of the Bushman sighting has a similar experience. Engineer Glenn North and his wife are driving west on Highway 12, just past the LaGrange intersection. It's a bitterly cold night. Temperatures are, in fact, at a record low, something like 29, negative 29. Oh, disgusting. And it was pitch dark, North says. This is a visceral reaction to that kind of cold. And it was pitch dark, North says. We were at the flat plateau between the Grange and where Highway 12 changes to a three-lane. You go down a valley, then up to the top of a hill, and suddenly, coming from the north to my right, a creature came out of a ditch right in front of my pickup truck. It completely disappeared from view in front of the hood, but then it completely cleared the vehicle, which amazed me. I'd like to say it had to be going about 40 miles an hour. The figure kept its speed up as it ran... 
down, through, and out of a ditch on the opposite side of the road, then apparently vaulted over a fence. North noted the creature's body made a straight line from nose to tail, had a long snout, and was covered in dark, shaggy fur that fluttered in the breeze. It appeared twice as tall as a wolf. The ears were pointed like a wolf's, but bent fully backward as it ran. Out there on a night like that at that speed, North said, it was not somebody's farm dog. It was an exotic animal. The thing that really impressed me was the incredible power and sense of purpose it had. It took my breath away. I was a little awestruck by the thing. Two years earlier than that, in August of 1990, a couple driving home along the edge of Kettle Moraine State Forest one night spotted the creature standing near a span of snow fencing at the roadside, about 20 yards from their car. Its eyes were spread far apart and had a glowing gold color that they couldn't tell whether that was just natural eye shine or whether it was coming from some weird internal light. Their first thought was that they had to be seeing a cow, except the eyes were way too far off the ground. They estimated this whatever it was stood at roughly seven feet tall. Now, returning home, which was just down the road for them, when they returned home, they let out their 90-pound Doberman to do its business. The dog eh, walked about 10, 15 feet into the yard, sniffed the air warily, tucked its tail between its legs, and bolted right back in without doing its business. So that is a creepy thing to witness. Even if it you have really a little dog. It really is. Yeah, that has happened to us just here. You know, we're in da fucking Dallas, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, we let the dogs out back, and Dot ran out there. I think it was just Dot. And she ran out back, and her ears perked up, which they stick up anyway, so they perked up extra. And she stuck her head in the air and sniffed. And then you could see her immediately become scared, basically. And she came right back in. Like, there was no sniffing. There yeah. was no, no barking it's, at anything. She came right. It's this very... is the same dog that gently chased a raccoon that was in the backyard. Mm -hmm, it was kind mm -hmm. of like she saw the raccoon and the raccoon saw her. And this is a little backyard, so I don't know what the raccoon was doing there. But anyway, <laughs> she was chasing it. And the raccoon was like, oh, no, you're chasing me. And she was like, I'm going to get you. And it was a very slow motion chase up the. Uh, so she's not. When you can tell. When, when you can. She was scared. Of it's a, yeah. It like when you can see a dog when they're kind of just scared, like playfully scared or like a little startled yeah. versus when they are really terrified, like yeah, mortally like terrified. Is it is it. like yeah. it's time to go. Well, and the next day we found out that there had been a coyote. Oh, right, right. You told me about this. Down it was like trying to lure dogs to come play with it, which is really just like how it get, leads it to the pack where they devour it. Yes. And Fucking. that had been happening. Uh -huh. A lot of dogs had disappeared. Mm. And apparently it had gotten really close to our neighborhood and somebody had posted about it in no. our townhouse section. So Ugh. it was like, Oh shit! So she knew it was there, and so I was I was real proud well, of her for being good. smart that's enough to good. know those dot, those dot coyotes knows. are no good for her. <laughs> dot knows stranger danger. But she you're, does. You're She's a so good smart. mom. She's very uh, very smart. <laughs> Dexter so, would have been like, "Brr, Oh, that's cool. Brr. I want to be a coyote." Uh, yeah. <laughs> you got any red and green? Yeah. Um, or his favorite colors. <laughs> I really like those colors. That's, that's you almost got a spit take out of that one. Sorry, Thank I did. You. I was I was very sorry. I shouldn't have. I should have waited it was all right. to make it was that. Perfect. Timing was everything. <laughs> it was great. Now. Back to the story. So interestingly yeah. enough, a man from rural Delavan had seen a hairy creature crossing the road at incredible speed in a similar way not far from that same area. Only this was more than two decades before in July of 1964. The man whom Godfrey contacted and interviewed after discovering his story in a 1984 article and who wished to remain anonymous recalled the encounter took place 
between midnight and 1 a.m. He had just turned onto Richmond Town Line Road from Highway 89. I first noticed him on the north side of the road in a cornfield. Then he jumped a four and a half foot fence, ran across the road, and jumped the fence on the other side. He estimated the creature to be about seven or eight feet tall and weigh four to five hundred pounds. It ran on two legs, swinging its arms. Quote, the closest thing it looked like to me was a large human being. So remarkably similar experiences where they're seeing it cross the road. The only difference, and this is something we'll we'll kind of touch on later, is like every witness, some witness see the creature a little differently. Some will be like, oh, he's 100 pounds, uh, 150 pounds. Some will be like uh, 300 pounds. Some people say it's kind of grayish fur. Someone else will be like it's darkish brown fur with streaks of gray. Um, There's some variation in in eyewitness in terms of the physical details, but not in the movements of the creature or the location. That's Um, terrifying. You want to know why? Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. to it. Um, And also, bear in mind how many years these sightings are taking place within. I mean, you know, Linda Gottfried is trying to uncover the story in 1991, 1992, but these sightings are going back to the 60s. Oh, my God. So in 1972, a DNR agent, David Jetson, would be uh, be called to investigate. Because I know it is do not resuscitate. Fuck, I should have looked that up, you'd think. (laughs) Um, it's, uh, it's, it's domestic, uh, shit, I can't, uh, I'm gonna look it up, I don't know, you look it up. It's not, uh, do not resuscitate it's, it's, in it's, this it's, particular it's, usage. No, it's not, it's, um, okay. I think it's someone that, uh, investigates claims of, uh, an, it's like animal control, it's somehow related okay. to animal control or agriculture. So, uh, a DNR agent named David Jetson would be called to investigate a bizarre claim made by a terrified woman living in rural St. Atkinson, which is nearby. She claimed to have seen a large ape-like creature lurking across her land. Jetson found no evidence of this when he went to, to uh, see what he could see, but just two weeks later, the woman phoned again. This time, the beast, she said, had lumbered up to her front porch, rattled the screen door, and left slash marks on the woodwork seven feet off the ground. It then, she said, proceeded to the stable where it clawed deep gouges into her horse's neck. <sighs> and for these, uh, Jetson saw for himself. Uh, As Linda Godfrey tracked down more and more witnesses, many deeply reluctant to share their stories for fear of ridicule, she began drawing parallels between the Beast of Bray Road and rumors of wild men in the area going back to the 60s and 70s. For example, campers in Kettle Moraine would routinely catch glimpses of what the locals dubbed Eddie, or the Bluff Man, creeping through the woods, as would randy teenagers getting it on in the boonies of LaGrange and East Troy. So people had been seeing something for some time. Meanwhile, in August of 92, after her article came out and it already hit the national uh, syndicate, or syndicate, the national uh, tabloid press, um, Milwaukee teenager Tom Brichta and his buddy Chris Maxwell were driving home from a wedding reception in uh, uh, Genesee Depot. Tom was driving Chris back to Jellystone Campground, where the latter was staying for the time being. The fog was thick that night, so it's kind of similar to Doris Gibson's story, uh, the first sighting that uh, Godfrey Mm. interviewed. Brichter recalls you could barely see two car lengths ahead of you. A noxious odor seeped in from outside, like a skunk or a dead animal, but about ten times worse. Without warning... Oh, so like one of Genji's farts. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Without warning, Tom hit something. At first, he and Chris thought it had been a mailbox that they just had somehow not seen. So uh, he backed the car up to assess the damage. What he and Chris saw was no mailbox 
but a large, hairy beast on two legs reaching out for the passenger side window. Needless to say, they got the fuck out of there. Now, on the way back after dropping Chris off, he had to go down the same road, Tom noticed two highway patrolmen surveying the roadside about seven miles from where he'd hit the beast and stopped to talk with them. Someone, they told him, had seen what they thought was a bear shambling in a ditch and called police. The patrolmen could find nothing and were inclined to write the whole thing off. Tom knew better. Quote, it was large, he told Godfrey over the phone. Its lower chest or belly was at the top of my car. It was whitish gray with black streaks in it, and it was hairy. I just saw a faint shadow of actually how big it was. I didn't get any facial details, but the lower part of its body I can describe to a T. It had large legs. Um, uh, it was... I can't describe them as well as I can describe the arm that was reaching for my car. The fingers were the fingers were either pointed or had really quite the nails on them. The arm was long and kind of odd-shaped. Upon arriving home that night, Tom would find that a section of detailing along the side of his car had been ripped off. He's also one of the only witnesses to come forward claiming to have seen the creature not once, but twice. Two months later, in October of that year, 1992, Tom was driving down the same stretch of road with another friend, uh, Scott. Uh, they spied the beast strolling alongside um, a cornfield about 20 feet from the road, quote, like a person window shopping, as Tom put it. An intriguing detail, this time its fur was dark, not whitish gray. When the creature took note of them, Tom could almost swear it seemed to recognize him. In fact, damned if it didn't seem to chuckle. Ooh. The next day, now he that and Linda... might have been some uh, some other intention put on to <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, the next day, well, what's common among witnesses to describe when it stares at them, it really feels like they're being looked at by someone with evil intent. It's not mm. just like like an animal looks at you like friend or foe. They're like most witnesses that that made eye contact with it. And there were quite a few. Uh, which say that they just got, they felt like they were just being looked right through. Um, that's some that's, cool power, right? Like, right? you kind of like to have that where it's like, I'm looking at you, but you're going to think it's evil intent. And even if there's not any, that's just what they assume. Like, I, I feel Werner Herzog has that power. Um, oh, now, the next day, <laughs> Tom Brichta and Linda Godfrey would tour the site where he had seen the second the beast a second time. They stumbled upon a, a strange depression in the ground, uh, freshly made, not unlike a deer bed. Now, interestingly enough, these sorts of uh, formations are thought characteristic of Bigfoot in the Great Lakes region. In fact, Linda mused, if not for the dog-like head, the Bray Road beast, as most witnesses described it, may have been Elkhorn's own version of this king of cryptids. Yeah, now, it's very similar, a lot of the... Mm -hmm. Very the similar. The movements, the, the descriptions... Heights. The difference is the claws and the dog-like head, really. Now, right. to be fair, uh, to be Linda, fair. Linda tended to doubt Brichta's second encounter. The first one, she believed. Second one, eh. Turns out the young man had heard uh, just the day before reporting the second uh, encounter uh, that a producer was in town looking to secure mm -hmm. a few talking heads for his documentary on the Bray Road Beast. And so that does tend to cast into doubt, but... I, I, I'm with her. I think Brickta's first encounter was real. And then he just thought that, like, you know, I, I, in order, there, but at this time, it speaks to how many witnesses there were that he felt he had to say he saw the beast twice to stand out. Right. Yeah, right? that's true. 
And speaking of producers, Linda, and this is just a funny aside, she kind of got roped into writing a horror screenplay loosely based, and I mean loosely based, on her articles. Um, apart from never having tried her hand at a screenplay, Godfrey was the obvious choice. I mean, no one else had interviewed as many witnesses or dug up quite as much dirt on the creature as she. But the result left a lot to be desired, she's the first to admit. Her efforts chugged along reliably enough under the guidance of a how-to book, but the final draft bore about as much resemblance to the real-life story she'd pieced together as a werewolf does to a labradoodle. It included she epic. paid for it, though. That's she work. did. She wrote it on spec, right? It included oh, epic nice. battles That's between great. warring angels, one of whom she hoped would be played by Will Smith. Alas, he never read the script. And a female monster sporting the head of a cat. So it kind of got away from her. Um, Maybe a little. After the film failed to get off the ground, at least this incarnation of it, there there would be a, a Bray Road film, a, Bray, a, a fictional account of the Bray Road Beast made. Uh, I think it came out in 2008. It's not good, in my, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's not good. I've only seen clips of it, but that's quite enough. Um, <laughs> I'm done. I'm good. So Linda, she you. turned her efforts back to nonfiction, co- completing uh, The Poison Widow and deciding to compile her beast research into the now definitive book, on the subject. And indeed, we have to give her a lot of credit here because if not for Godfrey's tireless efforts and research, the Bray Road Beast may have just been another obscure local legend that came and went without a real reliable pedigree. Turns out not only had the creature been around for years, being witnessed by people all over the state, one particularly harrowing encounter, a harrowing encounter, went back decades. After Linda's original article went into syndication, an editor, from nearby Jefferson County called Godfrey with a burning confession. His father had seen the beast in 1936. Though seen is a bit of an understatement, the man's father, Mark Shackleman, had been a night watchman for the St. Coletta Home for Backward Youth, an institute notorious for being the residence of Rosemary Kennedy after her lobotomy at age 23. Um, Right. Uh, Backward youth to me, just I want it to just be... Kids that will only walk backward, and they don't know what else to do with them, so they put them in a home. Sounds like a Shel Silverstein poem. Exactly. Um, Now, one end of the property was strewn with ancient Native American burial mounds. Shackleman inspected these nightly, one evening around midnight, while shining his newfangled flashlight, because flashlights were new in the 30s, over these mounds, the beam caught a massive dog-like shape digging furiously into the top of one. Startled by Shackleman's presence, the creature creature fled into the fields. However, Shackleman's mysterious prowler would be far less skittish the following night. Surprising the beast yet again in the same spot at the same time, midnight on the dot, Shackleman marveled when, instead of bolting for cover, the creature stood defiantly on two (laughs) powerful legs, rising to its full height and locking eyes with him. He would later tell his son it was covered with dark or black hair, gave off a bad, bad odor like long-dead meat, and had eyes that looked right into me. The six-foot-tall figure stood in the glow of the flashlight beam and began to vocalize, articulating in a deep growl what sounded to Shackleman like a three-syllable word, Gadara. Now, bearing in mind, that Shackleman was probably either a practicing or at least a lapsed Catholic, Gadara struck him as a reference to the New Testament story in which Christ exercises several demons from a possessed man, a Gadarene, someone from the region of Gadara. Now, though Shackleman had been a heavyweight boxer in his day and was certainly no Frady Cat, he quailed in the beast's presence, almost against his will, convinced it had the power to kill him if it wanted, and easily. In those tense, uncanny moments, Shackleman did the only thing he knew to do. He prayed. He 
pissed himself. He and prayed. The beast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the two go hand in hand. I find. Um, the beast turned away slowly and walked off. For years, and I mean years, the only other person on the face of the earth who knew about the Shackleman's encounter was his wife, whom he had sworn to secrecy. He only told his son, Joe, the person who called Linda, much later, much later, when the latter was an adult. Joe drew There's a so sketch. Much, there is so much to unwrap mm, on that oh, story. The Native right. American burial ground, digging in it, of course, I mean, is it the smell attributed to the beast or is it to the burial ground that he's digging up. What is mm-hmm. he digging up? What is he trying to get? Is he trying to get something to exercise or does he need to be exercised? There's so much to fucking unwrap. Yeah. Or is it just a giant dog fi- trying to get a bone? You know, right. I mean, it's 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 just so digging weird, into a right? And then now, rearing back up on his hind <laughs> legs to stare at a man directly into his eyes. Mm. And everyone, I, I should mention too, I didn't get a chance to go into detail about the legs. The legs, you might be picturing the legs of a dog that just happened to be able to stand upright. That's not how witnesses described it. They described the legs as powerful human legs, like trunks um, with like quad, powerful quads and thighs and, and that it tapered into, you know, these massive feet. So these weren't, when once it stood up, they could tell, like, no, it looked like a person's legs. It looks like a person's right. leg covered in fur. It wasn't It wasn't like a dog that just had suddenly, you know, <laughs> trained itself to be able to walk on its hind legs because the legs just weren't that skinny. That's not how they work. Right. No. Um, so Joe Shackleman drew a sketch of the beast from his father's recollection. It shows a well-muscled humanoid form with three claws on feet and hands with a head and a head with a pronounced forward muzzle, prominent fangs, and pointed ears near the top of its head, Godfrey writes in her book. The head at least appears more canine than ape-like, but that's open to interpretation. The body is covered with long, scraggly fur. No tail is visible. The hands drop downward as if ready to claw something. Now, in the minds of some, the word Gadara explicitly connects the beast to demonic forces. Gloria Andrizi certainly agreed. Her own experience, she feels, oozed diabolical energy. Mind you, she's the one that saw it on the side of the road eating roadkill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as evidenced by the books flying off John Fredrickson's shelves when she floated the idea of the creature being not of this world, rumors of devil worship abounded among local teenagers at the time, unsurprising given the satanic panic of the 90s. Right. Yeah. When Shackleman's story came to light... The only thing was... worse would be if they were playing like Dungeons and Dragons or something. Oh my God. <laughs> Heavens to Betsy. The beast rolled a 10. Um... <laughs> When Shackleman's story came to light, there was talk of possession. Legend had it, some local priests had fatally botched an exorcism sometime in the early part of the 20th century, inadvertently cursing the region and giving the beast carte blanche to run amok in some obscure way. In fact, no record of a failed exorcism can be found, and I looked, at least not locally. I suspect this this part of the legend, which is, we're getting into more like woo-woo territory here. Um, I suspect (laughs) this particular wrinkle in the Bray Road Beast story comes from the notorious case of Anna Eklund. Anna, a pseudonym for Emma Schmidt, endured a series of brutal exorcisms from 1912 to 1928. Scholars consider it the most thoroughly documented possession case of the 20th century. And while Emma's story unfolded in Earling, Iowa, she grew up in Marathon, Wisconsin, where her dedicated exorcist, a guy by the name of Theophilus Reisinger, had served nice. as a monk. 
Marathon is just over 200 miles from Elkhorn. The story is too involved to discuss in great detail here. In fact, we should probably do an episode of it one day. But there's no shortage of experts who believe Emma's ordeal was orchestrated by her aunt, who just so happened to be a self-proclaimed witch. Mm. It's also important to note, for our skeptical side, um, that Time magazine ran a profile of the Anna uh, Eklund case in 1936 the same year as Shackleman's encounter with the Bray Road Beast. The Bible verse in which Christ drives out demons from a possessed gadarene includes another odd detail some find relevant. After their expulsion, the demons possess a herd of pigs and then are driven off a cliff. So the clear intimation, which as far as I know hasn't been ventured by anyone publicly, thank God, but is definitely there between the lines if you care to read it, is that the demons put into Emma Schmidt by her sorceress aunt after being driven out made themselves at home in a dog. Perhaps several generations of dog, uh, which admittedly would account for both the creature's longevity and the mutable color of its fur from witness to witness. Happily, among the vast majority of eyewitnesses, the demonic angle is considered pure bullshit. <laughs> the, the, the beast most agree is something purely physical. Uh, just a cryptid. And its stomping grounds run far afield of Bray Road. Linda has mapped out no less than 20 major reliable sightings across Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois beginning in 1929. She takes as a starting point the Wild Man of LaGrange, a hairy bipedal monster first reported in 1929, though the details are sketchy. After Shackleman's encounter in 1936, there is the so-called Eddie of East Troy, a similar creature rumored to stalk popular makeout spots in the 60s and 70s. In 64, we have the Delavan sighting and a sighting in, in Wadsworth, Illinois. Campers in the vicinity of Bluff Road near LaGrange see the eponymous Bluff Monster throughout the 70s. In 72, a hairy hominid terrorizes that farmhouse in rural Jefferson County uh, where the horse's neck got slashed. The same year, a witness named Kim Del Rio in Milwaukee sees a dog-like creature shambling upright across a neighbor's lawn. In 1980, Ronald Nixon sees a similar animal stalking the shore of Bark River north of Whitewater. That winter, Mark Kirschnick... Kirschnick sees a seven-foot-tall, dark-colored biped with glowing yellow eyes from his snowmobile. Then comes the era of Gloria Andrizi, Doris Gibson, Heather Bowie, Tom Brichter, the Bushmans, etc., and scores of other witnesses, all of whom Linda Godfrey interviews either by phone or in person. Her research is exhaustive. I highly recommend the book. It's probably my favorite of its kind on just one cryptid. Yeah. Uh, but all of this begs the question, what exactly is the Bray Road Beast? An evil spirit? A long-lived undiscovered primate? A massive stray dog? A family of massive stray dogs? A government experiment? A hoax? Mass hysteria? A little something from each column? Who can say? <laughs> I, for one, believe there are just too many witnesses who reported similar experiences well before the beast was big news. The fact that most of them brought their concerns to local animal control authorities, not the press, persuades mm -hmm. me that they saw something. And I just don't think so many people living in rural areas could mistake a common animal for what's consistently being described. Yeah. Sweeping right, as Godfrey's... That's true. You see a lot of stuff like that when you live right. in the country. Everyone out yeah. there knows what a bear looks like, knows what a coyote or a wolf looks like. It, it, you know, but it, it, so they, it's weird shit stands out. Um... Sweeping as Godfrey's sighting, map, and timeline are, taken together they seem to represent an acceptable range of migration, especially if we factor in the possibility that the beast is several animals across multiple generations. But read the book, watch the documentary, and decide for yourself. Mm. Just remember, if while driving down a dark country road in the dead of night you happen to spot a towering two-legged creature with pointy ears, a long muzzle, glowing eyes, and massive claws, be grateful it's dining on roadkill and not you. <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, Man, I gotta say, it sounds like a pack. 
It really does. It sounds, it sounds like, like a pack. it sounds like a pack, or or perhaps the beasts, perhaps it's the creature's fur changes color on the season. Perhaps it molts or shit molts. They it call could, it molts. Be. could But shed. I mean, just thinking scientifically, right? That's not a thing that happens in his in nature. Like you don't get complete color changes from wolves, yeah. or from mm. bears or anything like that. So yeah. and then the different weights, like yeah, maybe you could see a different weight between a hundred, hundred and fifty pounds, hundred. 200 pounds, but 100 and 300 pounds, mm-hmm. that's significant. Mm-hmm. And that's so, very significant. You know, so it seems like maybe some person is seeing a younger creature. Right. And maybe an older creature. But I, it, I, I'm i with you. I think there may be several creatures. Yeah, um, it seems like a pet. I mean, and and if it is a wolf, they, they do, um, you know, travel in packs. Coyotes, mm-hmm. that's part of what we were talking about. Coyotes travel in packs. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. send one lone coyote out to draw in a dog, yep, like a pet yep, that wants yep. to play, and then they take them back to the pack, and the pack eats the puppy. So, you know, always make sure you have your dogs yeah. on a leash. Always, <laughs> always. Uh, but it's also very annoying if you're walking your dog and someone doesn't have their dog on a leash. I know you think your dog is nice. Stop fucking doing it. Anyway. <laughs> um, but it sounds to Preach. me like this is a pack of things that has been mm-hmm. around for a while. Just because they yeah. don't know what it is yet or haven't seen it, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it still seems... Like a pack, it does. It is fun to think of it, though, like a a family of werewolves. Yeah, I'd like and to see that. In the... my movie, one of the people, at least one of the people that has been interviewed, is a family member of the wolf pack. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's one of my favorite cryptid stories. So I was glad to get to dive into it. And uh, so good. thank you. But yeah, definitely check out the book, uh, the documentary, the the Seth Breed Love documentary is pretty good. He's got a whole series of cryptid documentaries, and they're Where they're, is fun. That? they're fun. They're fun. It's on Amazon. Amazon? I'm, I'm, okay. On Amazon, and they're I think they're free with Amazon Prime. Yeah, they are oh, with Amazon Prime. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but he's uh, yeah, got he's got like I one of the Boggy Creek monster, and he's got the one on Big Mothman stuff. They're all really good. He's got a really he's got a voice that uh, not him, but the the narrator for them, whose name escapes me, it sounds a lot like Jack, like a little bit, not a lot, oh, yeah. but a little bit like Jack. So it's got like all right, I don't like this guy can talk to me all day. <laughs> yeah, right. He is a gift. But they're good Jack. documentaries, and uh, but the book, Linda Godfrey's book, is just I really I'm I'm so impressed. So nice. awesome. Well, so I think that story. wraps it up. I think I felt we I feel like we came back into into uh, I feel we good. came back into form rather strong. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I dived yes. into it. You do- you dove into it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was a good time. This was a good time. Good time. Um, we'll probably do ghosticles next week, but we're not yes. setting anything in stone. <laughs> we're not going to commit to anything at this point. But that seems like the next best option. It does. So it does. send in your stories if you have a story. Please do. Of the beast. We love l- any cryptid stories. Any any, yeah, any anything that happens stories. on a dark road, dark country road in the dead of night where you see some weird fucking being. That's one of my favorite type of creepy fucking encounters. Yeah. That, any other kind of ghosty stories, you know, send us your, send us your spooky stories. Please um, do. Definitely. And um, thank you guys so much for your patience and your support. Yeah. Uh, Patreon, of course, you've heard the commercials, so check it out. Yep. Um, uh, we appreciate any support, but the financial support is real fun. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> helps us, it helps us keep our engineer Matt. That's love. true. We adore Matt. We need Matt. Otherwise, we would not have a podcast. Uh, <laughs> we, we so, would not. Um, um, thank you guys so much. Stay safe. Stay sane. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to sleep with the, to lights, sleep with the lights on.